In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, his mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honour. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realise that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God for ever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, 
I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you are lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true 
and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honour and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Hi friends, we're going to continue reading Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 60 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come, up, come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so that so these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do, no, do, you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image of, I've made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, 
and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's commands and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Awesome. Thank you for that reading. I appreciate that it gets a little bit repetitive with those instruments. Uh, but it is a really uh, helpful thing for us to notice. Uh, because in, in texts like this, particularly in stories that are being presented like this, they're intentionally a little bit satirical. And the instruments are kind of, me it's meant to be arduous, as it's kind of repeated to us, because it's kind of meant to be funny. I think you probably had to be there for it to be funny. Um, but the point is that it's highlighting the challenge that was being issued to these men. I'm glad to have you here as we continue our series in the first half of Daniel, preparation for looking at the second much stranger half on Rivendell. Uh, Daniel 1 to 6, at least that kind of appears to be pretty normal stuff we're used to dealing with. Um, but thanks for dealing with some fairly long Bible readings. I recognize that. I'm trying to get through six chapters in four weeks. 
um, but I do appreciate that they are quite long, and it's but it's important to me that we're exposed to all of the book before we go away. Uh, today, we are looking at chapters two to three, two chapters which the lives of the companions are threatened by the wrath of King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the key thing that I need you to do with me today is follow the narrative as I speak. So if you can have your Bible open, that would be real helpful. Um, because to save time, I'm only going to quote when it's super relevant. So you need to try and stay with me in the text and make sure that everything I'm saying is actually there and not just pulling a fast one on you. How about I pray for us? Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we pray now that as we consider these two stories, that you would challenge us, that by your spirit, you would change our hearts uh, and you would help us to see who you are. Father, I pray that we would be people who follow you because we know who you are. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Uh, one of my favorite shows on TV, I've got the screen on. Uh, one of my favorite shows on TV uh, is a show by Michael McIntyre in the UK. And basically what he does, he's a comedian, is he bursts into celebrities' houses at like two in the morning when they're in bed and then does a game show with them while they're sat there lying in bed. Uh, and the, the thing I really like about it is you kind of get to see beyond the veil, right? You get to see behind people's self-presentation that they put out of themselves in their lives and you see them kind of raw and vulnerable uh, in different situations. Uh, a guy called Michael Fagan in 1983 uh, jumped the walls of Buckingham Palace. Uh, he moved through the grounds, found himself in the palace, uh, and made his way, well, found himself in the Queen's bedroom. Uh, he sat there and chatted to her while she sat in bed for about 10 minutes before the security guards came and took him away. Uh, we're told that the Queen was very polite, kept very calm in that situation. Um, but it's kind of interesting, isn't it? The, the idea of, of being in the Queen's bedroom, it kind of pulls away, once again, those kind of veils that are up that create an image of a person and suddenly you see them in a much more vulnerable way. And today, we see that with Nebuchadnezzar. We go into his bedroom, we see him freaking out at a dream that he has, completely undermining this big, powerful image that he likes to project of himself. It wasn't always easy to be a king in the ancient Near East. They didn't always have the longest life expectancy. In fact, usually they didn't. Uh, this means that kings are often anxious about the security of their position. And so they tend to assert themselves to make people stand in awe of them and also to scare off threats. Nebuchadnezzar is not immune to these fears. And then he has this dream. This dream that he doesn't understand and scares him. Uh, he calls in all of his advisors from the court to help him. And then we have what is a really strange interaction. You see, he won't tell them the dream. He wants them to tell him the dream and the interpretation. Now, the reactions of everyone within the story, well, it's meant to do two things. The first is we're actually meant to think that this is ridiculous. We're meant to think that this is an impossible task. Neb's being erratic, he's being threatening. Do you see how the temperature of the narrative kind of raises as the helplessness of the advisors grows as they beg him to reconsider and see their situation is helpless? And finally, we see the situation tip over into the prime, and we see the primary question of chapter two is posed. Look at verse 10 with me. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. 
No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. More literally, it says, there is no man on earth who can do what the king asks. Setting up the entrance of the one man who does, Daniel, in a moment. But at this point, we need to see what's happening in the context of chapter one, right? We asked the question last week, who is the Lord? And now we see the futility of one who claims to be Lord. We see the futility of Nebuchadnezzar's power. He's unable to gain for himself the interpretation of the dream. He doesn't have the power to do this, right? He's using the only power that he has, which is threats of violence, yet he's unable to kind of retrieve this information from his servants. They are helpless and he is helpless too. As the soldiers look for the wise men of Babylon then to carry out their execution, Daniel steps in and he gains them some time. Somehow, he's able to influence the soldier in charge, must have been a charming dude, and also he's able to enter the court. But, when we see, but then we see something even more striking, because when Daniel returns to his companions, he asks them to pray for revelation. Daniel, at this point, does not know the dream or the interpretation and he doesn't know for sure that he's going to receive it. He's doing something monumentally brave in an attempt to save his friends, risking more anger from the king should he fail. In the night though, his story, his, his courage is rewarded. The mystery is revealed to him and he praises God saying, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. This is verse 20. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He knows what lies in dark. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Now, these are what I think are the key verses of Daniel. Daniel 20, uh, sorry, Daniel 2, 20 to 23. The verses that help us understand everything else that happens in the book. If anyone ever asked me, Tom, what's the book of Daniel about? These are the verses that I would give them. These words from Daniel himself that declare the hand of God in the rise and fall of great kings and in the distribution of revelation and wisdom. That while the powers of the world may seem in control, dominant and inevitable, they are not. Daniel knows that what Nebuchadnezzar wants can only come from the God of heaven. And so he goes to Nebuchadnezzar with this truth. Verse 27, Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. He recounts the dream of the statue of gold and silver and bronze and iron and clay. And then he interprets it for him. 
And we see that this is a dream about the rise and fall of empires. Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold and it flowing forth from there. Now we'll think more about the statue itself on Rivendell when we look at chapter seven and the four beasts. But I can't give you everything or you won't come along. But for now, what I want us to see is who is in control of the narrative without it even being said. God has influenced everything. And importantly, whether servants of Nebuchadnezzar have failed, just like the servants of Nebuchadnezzar disobeyed him in chapter one, God's servant has succeeded. He is loyal, he is faithful, humble in passing on the credit and trusting. Nebuchadnezzar, the pitiful king that we get to see worried in his bed, is shown to be powerless. And the God of Daniel is shown to be in charge. Now, it appears at this point that Nebuchadnezzar recognizes Daniel's God at the end of chapter two. And we might think that this is a moment for kind of celebration. But there are two things that I think should make us doubt this. First, he does not address him directly. Nebuchadnezzar only ever addresses God in chapter two with reference to Daniel, kind of through Daniel. And second is seen at the start of chapter three. We get this dream of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar receives. He has it explained to him. We get the warnings that come with it. And then verse one of Daniel three, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and six cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. I'm not sure this guy gets it. In the context of his dream, I think it's fair to assume that this statue is of Nebuchadnezzar, although it doesn't say. What we do see is an immediate move by the king to assert his authority over worship in his land, verse four. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. No slap on the wrist in Babylon. Once again, we see him using the only form of power that he seems to understand, threats of violence. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that the Jews who have found prominence in their new situation are resented by the other advisors. The agents of the empire seem to be as much of a threat to, to the men as the king himself. So they dob them in, right? No one likes a dobber. And these guys are meant to be kind of presented in that annoying light of someone who dobs you in. Uh, my sister, massive dobber, right? She's two years younger than me. Sorry, I just gotta get this off my chest, really. Her name's Maddie, she's great, except she was a massive dobber growing up. Uh, she used to do this thing where she'd be like, okay, I'm gonna dob on you, I'm, I'm, telling, I'm telling on you now. I'd probably done something worthy of getting in trouble for. Um, and then I would like, cause I was older than her, I'd, I'd like race her home. So I'd like run ahead, of my, run ahead of her by quite a long way. No, but I'd run ahead of her, get, get home first. And then I'd be stood in front of my dad and he'd be like, yeah, what's up? And I'd be like, oh, Maddie's coming to tell on me. So I thought I'd beat her here. 
And he was like, I think you probably want to be as far away as you can the other way right now. Um, but anyway, point is, it's annoying, right, when people dob. Even teachers. Teachers don't like kids that dob on other people all the time. It's an annoying thing. And we're meant to feel annoyed at these guys, right? They're meant to be kind of crafty. And we get guys like this later on in Daniel 6. Verse 12, look at them. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. And as may not surprise you by this point, Nebuchadnezzar goes into a furious rage. This guy can't control anything. And this is a key thing about Nebuchadnezzar's character. He has no control of anything even his own emotions. Now, it had already been stated what happens if the edict is disobeyed, right? So why weren't these guys just taken away and killed immediately? But Nebuchadnezzar has them brought to him first. Maybe there's more going on here, right? They go before the king, and he gives them another chance. Why? Well, I think that maybe being recognized as the one who is in power is more important to this king than anything else, more important than punishing those that have disobeyed him. His weakness is exposed. And he now discovers that the God of Daniel does not have this weakness because his servants are loyal to him. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the Lord, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. The companions call him on it. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's cornered them, right, with his threats of death, but the companions take that off him, turn it around, put him in a corner, and force his hand. They force him to make the decision that he doesn't want to. They show him that his threats are powerless to command their worship. Now, verse 18 is an interesting one, right, because they tell him that their God can save them, and they're confident that he will deliver them in some way, and so this highlights Nebuchadnezzar's problem and the loyalty that he will never be able to overcome. You see, he's unable to force the obedience and loyalty of the servants of God, not because they will be saved by him, but because they know that their God is in charge. They, they do not know what he will do, but they know that they are better off trusting the one who is truly in charge, the one who truly has control over their fate. You see, they shouldn't submit to Nebuchadnezzar even if it meant they were saved because they don't actually think that he has sovereignty over that outcome. There is simply no point. Now, it might not surprise you by this point. Nebuchadnezzar is furious. In his frustrated humiliation, he has the furnace heated to an obscene heat. The men are thrown in, but notice that it is not the servants of God who are consumed by the fire. And we normally miss the death of these guys. 
Verse 22, the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, three men firmly tied, fell into the burning furnace. Those who are loyal to God in the narrative are not affected by the flames. But those who had placed their loyalty with the king are killed by the fire, even when he hadn't commanded their death. His protection is meaningless. He cannot protect them. But when Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace then, he sees something incredible. Look at verse 25 with me. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now, son of the gods is a classic Aramaic term for angel. God has sent his angel to protect them to protect them before the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar. The true Lord has intervened and saved his servants. Nebuchadnezzar is left with no choice but to retrieve the men whose hair is not even singed, right? Like the text is going to lengths. It talks about how many clothes they're wearing before. It's going to lengths to show us that not only do they survive, it's as if they've not even been in the fire. And so Nebuchadnezzar establishes a law around the worship of this God. Now, once again, this may see like a, seem like another breakthrough moment for Nebuchadnezzar, but I want you to notice something. If Nebuchadnezzar is making the law about God, then he is still positioning himself as above him, in control of him, and in charge of him. He'll see that that's definitely not the case when we look at chapter 4 next week. Now, there is so much more I could say about these two tales, right? Like each of these chapters take up about 10,000 words of my PhD. You guys are lucky that Justin's put me on a time limit and I'm not just gonna talk for that long. Uh, but they are incredible stories of courage in the face of death and power. If you have any questions, just come and chat to me about it and then you'll regret asking me after you go home so late. But we see that this courage, right? It, the courage isn't the point itself. It points to something that Daniel and his companions understand. They understand that their fate is not in the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar. The hand of God is what determines whether they live or they die, and so they choose to trust in him and not the power of the king. Daniel acts without knowing if his God will give him the dream. Right? Instead, he simply knows that if his and, he and his companions are to be spared, it must be his God that acts to do so. He does not act on the condition of God's work. He acts because he trusts who his God is. The three men do not know if God will save them, but they do not make their loyalty conditional on if he does. They trust who he is, over the threats of the king. Humans are natural traders, I think, right? We wanna exchange for things when we put something on the line. We care about what's in front of us, what we have, we, what someone can do for us. Politicians promise us things in exchange for our votes, right? We go to work in exchange for our salary. We behave so that we won't be punished. Uh, when I was in the army, it was fear that was largely used as a motivator 
for behaving in a particular way. The punishments that you get. And I promise you, you'll do a lot when you think that your sleep, food, and general energy levels are under threat. Uh, I once spent a week marching at 5 a.m. on the parade ground for the mess that I'd hidden kind of in my room during an inspection. And I can promise you, I never did it again, right? But the leaders that I worked the hardest for weren't the leaders that dealt out the most threats. They weren't the leaders that gave out the most rewards. They were the leaders who had convinced me of their character. When I was convinced of their character, I knew that I would follow them, not knowing whether or not they would get it right or they'd do the things that I wanted, but because I knew that I could trust them with this. A challenge for us is that the loyalty of the men in these chapters is not based on what God will do for them. It is based on trust in who he is, that he is in charge, that he is the only one who determines whether they live or die, and so they act for him. Nebuchadnezzar's weakness is exposed by the failure of his threats. If he cannot use the threat of death to bend the followers of God to his will, then he has no power over them. As Daniel declares in chapter 2, it is God who raises up kings. The, one of the jokes in this passage is that Nebuchadnezzar is not in charge of the worship of God as he tries to be, but God who is in charge of whether Nebuchadnezzar is king. Daniel and his companions, though, are remarkable in these two chapters. The men do not act provocatively, right? They don't seek out persecution. But when it comes, they simply refuse to bow, refuse to turn from their commitment to their God. They do not move to provoke the king, but they also refuse to be moved by him. Daniel acts to save the other wise men. He takes an immense risk of what could happen to him if he does not deliver. But he trusts that if he can be saved, then it is only his God who can do that. He's then used by his God to provide the king with the vision and its interpretation. He's used to show the plans and continual truth of his God. And then unlike what I might have done, he passes on all of the credit to God himself. He is humble, brave, and trusting in a time when he must have felt incredible fear. The interpretation of the dream, though, shows us the rise and fall of kingdoms starting with Babylon. Like I said, we'll discuss this more in chapter 7, but for now we see a vision that develops and affirms our central truth. It is a vision that was true then, but is also true now, that kingdoms will rise and they will fall until one day there will be an eternal kingdom ruled by this God that will never fade away. The challenge for us today, though, is to see the faith of these men and to look inside ourselves. Is our faith based on a trade, on an exchange? We follow Jesus and in exchange, we get heaven. Or, like these men, do we follow Jesus because of who our God is, who he has shown himself to be in what he has done for us in the gospel, and our understanding of the eternal kingdom to come upon his return? Do we follow a concept or a person who we trust? 
Look at the faith of these men and be challenged by it. And then look at who God is in these chapters. And look into your heart and consider how much bigger our faith is than just an exchange. It is a relationship with the God whose hand is over all kingdoms and powers and in whose hand our salvation is found. Therefore, these men stand firm even when things look dire. Our faith is not based on conditions God has to fulfill. It is based on trusting the one who has proven himself time and time again. And that is so important because our lives are up and down. But this truth of who God is is the same when things are fantastic and when things are harsh. And the future that we have together with this king is sure because we trust him, not because one day I decided to make a trade with God, but because I know who he is and what he has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is deep and complex, but we pray, Father, that you help us to have faith that is based on a trust in you, a tangible faith that's not just in a concept. Father, I pray that as you change our hearts that you would give us courage that you'd give us reliance on you. And each day, we pray, Lord, that you help us to trust you more because we all know that sometimes that's really hard. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.